Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky, and I am in Austin with Evan. Hey, Evan. Hey, Max. Aaron's not here. Aaron's on vacation, Mexico. Josh Behrman actually was supposed to be in Austin. His flight got canceled. Yeah, it's uh, next week. He'll be here next week, probably. Josh will be, I'm sure, on the podcast next week. I'm looking forward to Josh's uh, triumphant return slash start. Um, Evan, who did you just talk to in this exact <laughs> office that we're sitting in? <laughs> Given that we're in Jake Silverstein's office, it's probably appropriate that I spoke to Jake Silverstein, the editor-in-chief of Texas Monthly, uh, who is also a writer uh, for Harper's previously and uh, has a combined work of fiction and nonfiction called Nothing Happened and Then It Did. As someone who's awkwardly sitting in the room while you talk to Jake, it's a really good interview. <laughs> I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. We'll see. We'll see about that. Do you have anything to plug? Anything you want to talk about? Well, we still have uh, the Atavist story, The Sinking of the Bounty by Matt Scher. The people, they love that story. Yeah, people are loving that story because that story is really, really good. Yeah. You guys should do more shipwreck stories. You should start like a shipwreck imprint. Just lost at sea, castaway shipwreck stories. Two out of our last three have been on the ocean. I think we might need to go terrestrial. Max, who do we? who's our sponsor this week? When I'm at land or on sea, uh, our sponsor this week is Tiny Letter. Thank you, Tiny Letter, for continuing to support this podcast. And thank you, Jake, for letting us invade your office to do this. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast, Jake Silverstein. Good to be here, Evan. Yeah, thanks for being on. We're here during South by Southwest. Which is, is this the worst time to be in Austin all year? No, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not such a cynical person. I think it's an interesting time, although it's a very irritating time. It seems incredibly irritating as an yeah. outsider. But it's something interesting to observe, you know. It's like, a, it's, like, it's like when the exotic birds fly into town on their, you know, <laughs> on their winter migration. Some of them are, are prettier than others in terms of their <laughs> impact on the city, I imagine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I want to talk about a bunch of things, but I'm going to start with the one that most interests me, which is I I knew you from your writing bef- long way way before I ever met you or anything else yeah. from your pieces that you were doing for Harper's, 
And now you are running uh, what is probably without argument the most successful and nationally acclaimed regional magazine. Um, the transition from being a writer to be an editor, I'm curious if you wanted to be an editor in your life. Like, did you aspire to be an editor? Did you end up falling into being an editor? It's a good question, uh, and one you know that maybe has different would have different answers at different times. But I would say um, both. Mm-hmm. I would say um, the big downside for me of editing this magazine is that I'm not writing right mm-hmm. now. I just don't have the time for it. I don't think that editing is incompatible with writing, but I think editing at a magazine that, and this really describes all magazines right now, that's in the middle of a very time-consuming process of figuring out how to transition from. Uh, essentially being a legacy print operation to being a, let's have this be the last time I use the phrase, multi-platform, you know, media, whatever it is, right? Sounds like Um, you could do something at South by Southwest. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Uh, But that transition, you know, and figuring out the digital side of our business and, you know, the editorial piece of that um, is very interesting and I'm enjoying it, but it, it also is incredibly time consuming. So I think being an editor of a magazine at this moment in time uh, turns out to be somewhat incompatible with writing. And so that's, to me, the big downside of this job is that I'm not writing as much as I'd like to. Um, you know, the the first editor of this magazine, Bill Broyles, the founding editor, was, um, was very much a writing editor. Mm-hmm. Um, Bill uh, wrote a number of the great stories that put Texas Monthly on the map in the 70s. A uh, long story about Barbara Jordan, long story about the King Ranch. Uh, I could go on and on. His successor was Greg Curtis. He was the editor of the magazine for 20 years, and he wrote a monthly column. He didn't write as much long-form feature writing during that time, but he wrote a monthly column that was about 2,000 words. Um, and I I still hope and had always hoped that uh, I'd be able to inhabit the role more like Greg and Bill did, which is to say writing. Um, and uh, so far, it's just been there's just been way too much to do for that, but I, you know, I'm an optimistic person, so we'll get there. <laughs> And the when it comes to the digital part, I was reading the editor's letter that you that you kind of issued uh, when you redesigned the website, which is not not that long yeah, ago. Yeah, just about a month and a half. Yeah, and um, and but you say in there that the 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 print product, shall we say, is was and is a profitable venture. It's a healthy, profitable it is, yeah. venture. Um, and so, what kind of like what's the level of pressure to make something happen digitally well given that's yeah, true no i mean it's a good question so it is a profitable venture but i mean to me um sallying forth with you know energy into the digital space isn't just about finding another revenue stream to bolster this operation it's also about finding an audience for the great long often long-form work that we do i mean you guys have shown among others, that there really is an appetite for long-form work online. And I like to think that the work that we do has a whole audience that, uh, the long-form work, rather, that we do, has a whole audience that doesn't even know that it's that it's ready to read Texas Monthly Stories because they might not really be interested in Texas. Well, they're interested in great narratives, and we have a lot of great narratives. So um, one reason that the digital space is important to us is, is just an audience. You know, it's like we, like everybody else, need to be where readers and obviously younger readers are, you know, congregating. Um, so uh, there, there isn't, I wouldn't say that there has been a tremendous amount of pressure for us to, like, develop a new revenue stream um, 
to you know compensate for like a, a struggling print model it's more that you know it's an audience development thing and and it's and it's also just a reflection of reality i mean that's the space that we're all you know as editors and writers as we're working on these long form stories that are produced in a print magazine and read primarily historically in a print magazine during the process we're also just interacting behaving expressing ourselves reading stuff commenting on stuff online and i think any magazine wants to have its stuff uh, as much a part of that conversation as possible. Text Monthly is in that conversation regularly. I mean, you talk about Skip Hollingsworth and yeah. Pam McAuliffe and Katie Vine. And, you know, I know all these writers, yeah. even though I don't subscribe to the print uh, version of Texas Monthly. Good. Um, and is that, uh, why do you think that is? I mean, I'll just mm. throw out the possibilities of, you know, Texas has better stories than everywhere else. Ah, that, uh, that, right. Or you've built up some sort of tradition here and I would assume this is the case where storytelling is a kind of component, key component of what you do and I'm wondering how that happened and how you maintain that. I think both things are true. I mean, I you know, this question often comes up, um, uh, why is Texas the only state with a Texas Monthly, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some city magazines, obviously, that do a great job, um, uh, and, you know, we don't have to go through. It's a long list. But there there aren't really any other state magazines that um, have the kind of history of, of long-form uh, narrative uh, nonfiction that we do. And and so the obvious question is why. So I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that you hit on two of them. It's very much the case that Texas has great stories. I think there's reasons for that are that, A, we are just huge. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of room for stories. Um, B, we have a lot of crazy people. So uh, that helps. There's a lot of violence in Florida Texas. Florida has a lot of. Florida's probably got it on the crazy Flor- people. Well, Florida is probably the, the the state that would be like if you were going to start the next Texas Monthly and you had some seed money, you'd probably go to Florida. Yeah, I mean, California, you don't want to go to California, ridic- but no, it's because we tried that. that. You did? Yeah, we tried. I mean, not, really? I wasn't part of it, but Texas Monthly as an institution tried to take over New West in the early '80s and bring the Texas Monthly Magic. At that point, the magazine was about 10 years old, and it had succeeded beyond anybody's wildest imagination. Uh-huh. And so the you know the ownership group, which was essentially still the founding publisher, Mike Levy, said, we're going to take a little bit of money. We got some investment money. We went out to California to take over New West and do you know the Texas Monthly thing in California, and it failed miserably. And so that's part of why another reason why it works here at Texas, in Texas Monthly is that um, they're – there, you know, you need readers, a core group of readers who have a kind of shared identity mm-hmm. and who also feel pride in the content and in the the subject matter. And we have that here because Texas is a uniquely prideful state as a state. Um, that's not the case in California. It's not this case. I don't really know Florida, but I don't think it's the case in Florida either. Um and I don't think it's really the case to the extent that Texas is a place that has a sort of national self-identity. I don't think there's any other state that quite comes close to it. I mean, it is the only state – people will dispute this because there are some historical details that allow you to dispute it. But truly, there's no other state that was a nation prior to being a state. Mm-hmm. And Texas was for 10 years. We were a republic. And that national identity is very much – alive and well it's why you know it's sort of why rick perry said that thing that people interpreted <laughs> right. as being a call to secession is why we call ourselves the national magazine of texas um you know and some of that is like just sort of humor at this point but there is still some truth to it and um so that's another reason why texas monthly is allowed is allowed to kind of 
be this almost like national magazine for a state is because it's not really a state. It's kind of a nation. Right. And the writers, you know, a lot of the writers seem to be from here, uh, from yeah. what I know. Of 80% of the editorial staff is from Texas. And is that something, uh, I'm sure it's probably not like a mandate, but, you know, do you tend towards, instead of trying to lure writers from wherever, East Coast, West Coast, to come here and work, or editorial staff, do you, are you trying to sort of have people with a more of an indigenous feel for what's happening I mean, it's in a balance. I think you want, you do want people from the outside, um, uh, but uh, but you want more people who are born and raised for authenticity. Authenticity is obviously really important to us. If the minute that our readers start to think that we don't know what we're talking about, we're lost. So um, authenticity and a sense of and a true sense of place is really important to us. And you know we don't have a litmus test exactly for for you know every single hire, but I think eighty percent is about right for the makeup of the staff being mostly from here. Um, you know, it, it sort of relates to something else, which is that the magazine is staff-written. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do have some freelance writers, but we're one of the few magazines that has, like, you walk down the halls here and you're just going to see office after office of Skip. And, well, Skip works in Dallas, but office after office of Nate Blakesley and John Spong and Pam Koloff and Katie Vine. They're all going to be sitting in there working, I hope. <laughs> we might be. <laughs> we can, we can check that out. They might be doing afterwards. something else, yeah. But, um, but one of the reasons that we're all staff-written is that in the seventies when the magazine was started, there really weren't there wasn't like a, a you know, pool of freelancers in Texas to draw on. If you were a, a great magazine writer or you wanted to be one, you just got the hell out and mm. went to New York. And so Texas Monthly at the beginning hired people to keep them here because they figured we need quality writers who also live here and know the place. And if we're using freelancers, as often as not they're gonna be people like, you know, Larry L. King, who's moved off to the East Coast or, you know, uh, Bud Shrake or people who are great journalists from Texas, but they just no longer live here. So one of the great contributions that Texas Monthly has made to Texas and to the kind of uh, Texas letters is that we've kept a lot of journalists here over the years. Mm -hmm. People like Gary Cartwright, for instance. I mean, Gary's one of the great, I think, magazine journalists of the last 50 years. His entire career took place essentially in Texas and at Texas Monthly. Were it not for the magazine, undoubtedly he would have gone off to New York and enriched the pages of Esquire or Sports Illustrated or what have you. So the magazine has really been a home for a lot of Texas writers, people like Larry Wright, Steve Harrigan, and on and on. And and having staff writing positions, I mean, that also must change the dynamic in terms of, I mean, it's almost kind of, it's it's old school in another way in that when, when people are freelancing, they just... It's such a hustle and, right. you know, you're really trying in some ways to get the story done. You know, all good freelancers want to do the reporting they need to do, but you're trying to get it done in some kind of uh, under time constraints because you got to right. get other work and right. all that sort of thing. And having someone who's a staff writer you can just send to follow something maybe that might not yeah. work out. That must be a different It's totally kind of different. I mean, look at the way that Pam Koloff has spent the last, like, um, you know, 10 months of her job. I mean, she's basically been on the Michael Morton beat for 10 months. Uh, I mean, that might even be a little short. Um, going back to last early early 2013, or sorry, 2012, is when she began work on what became, you know, her epic two-part story for our, our November and December issues. Um, and it took her, obviously, a story of that length, 28,000 words. It took her many, many, many months of working just on that. Um, after the story came out, she's kind of continued on that beat. She's been writing... Uh, she covered the, the court of inquiry, which was a kind of 
you know, uh, follow up to what happened in in the in the original trial where the original DA was uh, brought before a court of inquiry. Pam covered that for our website. Mm-hmm. The trial of the alleged killer who probably killed Michael Morton's wife is coming up, and Pam will cover that for us um, for another feature in the magazine. So, you know, she like there's no way she would have done been able to do that as a freelancer, and that's one of the great things, obviously, about having staff writers and. I like to think that that's something that Texas Monthly can kind of contribute to the discussion here in Texas and then also just the kind of community of long-form writing out there on the web is that we can take somebody incredibly talented like Pam and say, you know, our setup that we've got going here permits you, Pam, to spend a year just focusing on this one thing and you will, you know, you'll enrich all of our all of our reading lives with what you're able to produce. Um, do you still edit features? Do you do you actually I do? Yeah, uh, do probably more than I should. I mean, because I have so much else to do. But I love to edit features. I mean, I probably prefer most of all the write features. But um, but no, I very much like to edit features, and I like to work with the writers that we have here. Um, I, you know, editing is the fun part about editing is that uh, you don't actually have to write the story. Because as a writer, I'm a terrible procrastinator, and like all writers, I you know would rather do anything than face a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen. And so I love editing because you get to sit down and there's an entire, you know, nearly shaped piece of clay in front of you. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's fun. It's a different type of fun, but it's fun. Is it certain writers that you always work with or you, you pick? No, it kind of moves around. Yeah, it really moves around. I mean, we, we have editors and writers team up at Texas monthly. So people typically work with the same person, but then of course that doesn't always work out because of schedules and this and that. So I typically will jump in where there's, uh, where there's a need. So it shifts all around. And you, you mentioned sort of, you know, wanting to, uh, kind of be known, you know, over the web as a place for long form. Yeah. And I mean, in some sense that means, you know, competing, uh, with magazines that are in New York and obviously you compete with them for something like the national magazine awards as well. Um, but do you feel like, I mean, there's been a kind of like rich vein of national level stories that originate in Texas, uh, over the past like 10 years, you know, from like Lance Armstrong or Rick Perry briefly, um, you know, George W. Bush, obviously, um, do you is there a special a feeling here that like you want to win those stories like you should own a Lance Armstrong story because I don't know, yeah. is he from Austin or he just lives in Austin? I can't he's remember. from he's from the, the Dallas area, but he's yeah. lived in Austin since the early '90s, and his his career has essentially been made in Austin. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's definitely a feeling that we want to own those stories. I mean, you know, um, I mean, I, I, aren't we all kind of competitive by nature in some sense? And so when um, when I mean, it's different when a story like Rick Perry starts to happen, right? Because we obviously can't own that. It's it's everybody's. I mean, but what what we what we do when a character like Rick Perry becomes fodder for really every reporter in the country is we um, we just sort of scrutinize the coverage that is happening uh, elsewhere. And it's really interesting how, from a regional perspective, and I think you would find this from anybody at any regional publication, newspaper or magazine, how much different the perception and the coverage of a, of a character who kind of breaks the boundaries, the local boundaries, and becomes a national figure, how much different the perception of that character is from the kind of local or regional or, or, or uh, city magazine, from the pre- place that person is from, and how the, in the national perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. Rick Perry is a perfect example. There's, there's just a, a real gulf between the way that we write about Rick Perry and wrote about him during his president's, presidential campaign 
I almost said presidency. <laughs> we almost slipped into an alternate universe there. Um, that was going to be worth uh, right. uh, just the rest of the podcast. Just discuss what happened during the Rick Perry <laughs> the presidency. The Rick Perry presidency podcast. That's a great business model. Um, uh, no, but um, we just it's just really interesting to see the, the difference between the way that we perceive and write about somebody like Rick Perry and the national press. And it's not like the national press is wrong. They just... It's just we just have completely different perceptions. So when those stories happen, we have to just let go of them, obviously. But when the stories that are, you know, um, uh, closer to home, I mean, there's been some great, for instance, there's been some great stories um, from some other magazines about the border. Whenever I see a great story about the border, I wince because I, I mean, the, the border in Texas, because yeah. I feel like that should be ours. And, you know, I don't think we cover it enough and we should cover it more. And so when I see a great story in Esquire, let's say, about somebody walking the length of the border, I think, damn, we should that should be ours. So, yeah, I mean, the great thing about having your subject matter rigidly defined by a physical space is that, you know, you know what to ignore and what to pay attention to. And then the bad part is that it's very obvious when you got beat. Yeah. There's right. really no way around it. Well, I, I partly brought that up because um, in your book, so your book, which is called Nothing Happened and Then It Did, is that right? That's right, that yeah. Um, Thank you for getting the title right. Yeah, hey. Um, so the book, uh, I can let you describe it, but sure. there's a couple of really interesting things about it. One is that it mixes fiction and nonfiction. Right. But the little tidbit that relates to this is that in the more in the fictional part than the nonfiction part, the character a journalist uh, is seems to be thwarted very often by the New Yorker. And like right, a journalist right. comes from the New Yorker right. and there's this sort of terrible scene where you're like, I mean, you, it's not really you because it's the fictional part right. is working on this story. And then someone says, I think I've got a line to the New Yorker. Maybe they would want your services or something. And it turns out they just want you to drive the, right. their reporter around who they're sending down to basically cover this drought story yeah. in Texas. Um, so that kind of leads me to, I want to talk about the book and also just sort of how that relates to your experience as a young journalist. Like, yeah. did you feel like there were these sort of out of reach publications that were kind of like yeah, doing well, the thing I mean, you totally. to do? What young journalist doesn't feel that <laughs> way? When I, I mean, uh, um, that, I mean, the fun, so there's a few ways to kind of come into to talking about that book. And I should just say at the beginning that it's a, the kind of simple description of that book is that it's a combination of fiction and nonfiction that really tries to narrate a period of my life with some truth and some uh, imagination that kind of corresponds to when I was starting out as a journalist and trying to find my way and figure out what I was going to do and um, made various mistakes and uh, had some success. And they were all kind of, it's all sort of through there. It's a, it's a chronicle of about five years of, of my life. Um, and it's part true and, and I say part, uh, part made up, uh, but the same narrator is present throughout the whole book. So you sort of shift back and forth between things that truly happen to that narr narrator, first person narrative nonfiction, and then essentially fake first person narrative nonfiction. <laughs> um, and I, the reason I, I did it that way is because when I was, uh, writing the, the nonfiction in that book, uh, most of which, all of which was published in Harper's at one time or another, um, I was just really interested in the um, the the kind of character of the narrator mm -hmm. that was developing for me as a young writer. You know, I, I I think that there is like within the boundaries of what's fair and ethical for a journalist to do, there is some there is some latitude to the way that you create 
you know, your, your sort of character who is the person talking when you're in a first person setting. Um, and you know, it has to do with the voice and it has to do with, um, how much you reveal about your own past and your own history and the kind of gaps, the strategic gaps that you leave that you then know a reader will fill in one way or another. And all that stuff that I, again, I think you, um, you know, you, there's, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of imagination that goes into um, to, into that. Even when you're being effectively and pretty straightforward and honest about who you are, there's still some imagination and creativity that goes into the creation of self on the page. So all that said, like I became really interested in that process, and it seemed natural that one way to explore that and to have fun with it and to see how far I could take it would be to, to just full on do it. Right, it, that is to create a fictional narrator with my own name. Um, and, and then have him essentially just kind of go back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Um, so that was part of the, the, you know, the exercise of, of the book and what was fun for me writing it. Um, and that character, some of the qualities of that character then became, um, uh, sort of funny in the context of me becoming the editor of this magazine. Because one of the things about that character was that, and this was true, is that that character felt very much on the outside of the the big um, and impressive magazine industry. And, you know, this is essentially a testament to the fact that it took me a really long time to write that book. So when I began the book, I really did honestly feel as if the magazine industry was a, a large citadel. Um, were you that, already at, I mean, were you already at Harper's? Was I had, pieces you started I had, yeah, I had before? interned at Harper's. And yeah. so, I mean, I wasn't like, you know, some babe in the woods, but still I had interned at Harper's and done a little bit of freelance work there. And then I'd moved out to Marfa, um, which is in West Texas, to write for the small town newspaper out there, which was kind of just like a, you know, let's see what happens kind of deal. Um, And what happened was that I loved it out in West Texas, and I ended up staying there for about two years. And I started writing some, um, some, some longer form pieces, and I didn't really have any idea exactly what I was doing. Um, I, I had, you know, I had tried to do it before, but um, but really, honestly, prior to that point, I'd been trying to write poetry. It was what I wanted to do was write poetry. So I was writing poetry, and then I went and worked at this newspaper. It was a very strange career path, but uh, then I started trying to write this long-form stuff, and, um, you know, I had inns at Harper's, but aside from that, I felt as if the industry was full of people who were doing something that I didn't really know how to do yet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the... And I think that's actually like the the person who is um, a novice trying to figure something out and making mistakes, but very sincerely trying to find find meaning in the world is a really good uh, kind of frame of mind to write nonfiction from. Um, uh, you know, Jeff Dyer, who I love, whose nonfiction I love, yeah, says Jeff Dyer is my favorite. Yeah. Well, so he he comes to projects. He in, intentionally chooses subjects that he knows nothing about: photography, jazz, whatever and walks in the front door as a kind of gate crasher. Like, I don't know anything about jazz. Let's start trying to figure it out, and then let's put in the narrative my mistakes and my efforts to figure out the thing that I'm trying to figure out. And I think that's a wonderful way to write because the reader finds a proxy on the page for his own, his or her own effort to understand what you're talking about. And um, I dislike expertise. You know, I like people to cop to their shortcomings um, as narrators and then try to overcome them. So that's kind of what that character was. That's one of that was one of the qualities of that character of myself that I developed. Well, it became funny because by the time the book was published, I was editing this magazine, <laughs> and so my ability to pass myself off as like a, 
you know, a sort of naive guy out in the middle of West Texas trying to figure out the magazine business was like totally shot. So like the marketing campaign for the book was just a, you know, mishmash. It was more, it had a Hollywood ending. <laughs> well, well, then, like, no yeah, one would right. believe that ending. Right. If you read the book as it is, right. it would be, if you tack that on, by the way, as an <laughs> epilogue. Well, it effectively was tacked on because it was in the bio. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> But it does uh, those pieces, the Harper's pieces uh, that are that are contained uh, in there in some form. Um, they do have this quality of sort of like exploration without necessarily reaching the goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading the the Devil and Ambrose Beers mm-hmm. which was in there as a chapter, and when it came out, and it's like this mystery that you're trying to solve. You know, where is Ambrose Beers buried, and can you find it? Right, and then it just. It it ceases to matter whether or not you find them in some sense, or you know. The, right. Whereas most magazine stories are really trying to solve a problem, and if it doesn't solve it, it probably gets killed. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess it, it's it's totally a cliche to say that stories about failure are as interesting as stories about success. I mean, that's definitely a cliche, but it's sort of true. The story that was the biggest inspiration for that story was Dennis Johnson's killed story about looking for Charles Taylor in Liberia, which uh, the New Yorker assigned. He, he, it, the story was a disaster in too many ways to explain, but it was a total disaster. Um, and so they killed it, and I don't know how much time passed, but a significant amount of time passed. And then Harper's ran it in the, in him, in the form of him like copping to all the ways in which it had been a disaster. And I, I was having a lot of trouble writing that Ambrose Spears story because I had failed, as anyone would have seen that I would, <laughs> I had failed to dig up the corpse or the bones <laughs> of Ambrose Bierce. Um, and I, you know, I was having trouble kind of figuring out how to tell that story. And that Dennis Johnson story was the, was the thing that made it clear. Uh, so, I mean, again, there's a perfect example of a story where he, he's just like lays himself before the reader and says like, I didn't knew nothing about Liberia. And in fact, I shouldn't have even gone because by going, I got all these people in trouble who helped me and, I, you know, I feel terrible and I have all this guilt and I'm, I'm back in America, but I'm now I'm going to write this story. And it was a very interesting piece and in which he really laid out all of his shortcomings. Um, so. Yeah, I can see that your piece has that same, same sort of quality to it. You sort of, at a certain point, you're like looking for Ambrose Pierce and then you're actually looking for the devil and you're sort of going, going to people and asking right. them, do they know where the devil is? And right. And I, yeah, I mean, I like it when the when the reader is um, uh, like there's a couple layers of things happening, right? Well, one is that I like it when the reader is um, perceiving through the narrator the reality that the narrator is trying to describe and has a slightly different understanding of it than the narrator does. So that's that's kind of confusing. But what I mean to say is that like the narrator is is um, a part of a scene. Mm-hmm. And so the narrator is describing the scene as a part of the scene and is maybe feeling a little embarrassed by his, you know, lack of knowledge about something or is feeling, in the case of that story, a little credulous, a little maybe too credulous about some of the things that he's hearing and seeing. And the reader is both getting the entire story through the narr- narrator but also maybe understanding it slightly better than the narrator. Um, and I like moments when moments like that can happen in stories. Um, I like it. I like when the narrator um, is is sort of seen as somebody you can see through a little bit. Well, the other story that I wanted to talk about of the older pieces or that that's in the book is the poetry contest story. Yes. Just because I feel like that feeds into the 
this fiction and nonfiction. I mean, you're very clear in the book which pieces are fiction, which are nonfiction. It's like right. in the table of contents, you can tell by the way they're placed. But uh, but that's one that if you actually publish them straight through, you know, people would think, you know, you essentially go to this poetry competition, which is somewhat of a scam, and and end up winning, uh, not the grand prize, but, um, you know. And so were you playing also with the notion of what reads like fiction and what reads like nonfiction? Part What's of it, I mean, yeah, well, part of the the inspiration for doing the book that way with fiction and nonfiction was that when that piece came out, it came out initially as nonfiction before the book was a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when that piece came out, I mean, just I can't tell you how many people would like take me aside, you know, if we were in a conversation, they'd be like, but, you know, really between us, you made up most of that, right? You know, I mean, so many people thought that that was made up because it was too crazy to be true. And so I became very attached to the idea that you could write a book where that had fiction and nonfiction in which the fiction, the nonfiction seemed too crazy to be true. And the fiction seemed like it had to be based in reality, which is what we often assume of our fiction nowadays. We often assume that the writer had that experience and is just sort of lightly changing the names and, you know, fictionalizing it a little bit. And I mean, that's interesting, too, why we assume that and why that's become the kind of standard for American fiction. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the the poetry piece was wild and crazy. And, you know, as a young journalist, it was like stumbling into the greatest material you could possibly imagine. Um, and it seemed it seemed unreal, you know, being a part of it. It was, uh, I mean, for people who haven't read it, it was the Famous Poet Society was the name of the organization. So already it seems like I'm making that up. Um <laughs> And the its annual convention was a three-day affair uh, featuring all sorts of, like, teachers, poetry teachers, all of whom were, like, B and even C movie celebrities um, uh, at a um, casino hotel in not Las Vegas, but <laughs> Reno. So the whole thing was, like, pretty amazing. But there's also someone pulling you aside and and saying, come on how much of that is real is both sort of like the ultimate compliment for someone who's writing nonfiction, but also it's the statement of the inverse of what you said about fiction in that is it something about our times where, you know, enough has happened totally where people kind of come to doubt. That's a great point. And that's why, that's why I wanted to in the book really clearly identify what was fiction and nonfiction because, you know, it did occur to me at some point, well, why, why even label it? Let's just like put aside the labels and, just, you know, let it all run free. Um, but uh, I wanted people to understand that the nonfiction was written with the kind of standards that we bring to nonfiction, the factual standards that we bring to nonfiction, which, of course, makes it harder and easier in different ways. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, people do, like, people have come to, first of all, people have, have come to assume that a lot of nonfiction, that, or that certain elements of nonfiction might get made up, right? That's just become a problem. Um, and then, like I said before, people assume that fiction is based in reality so often. Um, and people have, be- have, I think, because of their fake memoir scandals that we've seen, people have become so demanding of their nonfiction that, like, I mean, everything must be scrutinized there's just like higher level of scrutiny that we bring to bear on our nonfiction than you know than 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 what we bring together bring to bear on the actions of our federal government practically <laughs> i mean it's like it's become this obsession um which uh, you know i don't know what to think about that but it's um it's it's definitely truthiness in nonfiction has become one of the subjects of our times i think 
So you talked about being, when you started the book and the pieces in the book, you were sort of this outsider looking at this citadel and trying to right. get there. And now you're here. We're sitting here. Your we desk. are. Has a really nice it's view of really the nice view. Yeah. state capitol. Um, <laughs> so how did you do that? I mean, would you recommend to a young journalist that they go to the smallest possible town they could come up with and uh, work for a tiny, tiny newspaper? Like, that's very, that's a, that's a sort of like, you know, 1960s, 1950s journalism approach. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at giving advice because when I, I mean, so I uh, graduated from college in the late nineties and spent a year working at Harper's in New York and then hightailed it to West Texas. And then, you know, we've sort of talked about what happened after that, but that was in the late nineties. I mean, the journalism business is completely different from what it was 15 years ago and entering into the journalism business, the pathways by which one does that are totally different. Um, I mean, that said, I would recommend what you just suggested to anybody. Um, I think, you know, first of all, you go work for a small town newspaper or any kind of small newspaper. And if you're a, if you're, you know, if your intention is to write long form, um, like a literary long form nonfiction, writing for a newspaper just gets you over some of what might be your precious impulses as a young writer that you just have to finish it and get the job done and, you know, realize that there are, um, you know, there are only so many times you should be going to the thesaurus in a single paragraph. You know? <laughs> um, but then also, I think it's valuable to go someplace where, you know, you're just way far away from other people who are trying to do the same thing as you. But then how did you, how, how would you say you sort of developed your own skills at at the longer form? You're working in a newspaper. Was it through reading? Was it through... Yeah, totally through reading. Oh, yeah, through reading. I mean, that's how, I think that's how any writer in any medium or any genre um, develops real great skill is just by reading and imitating and, you know, and combining different imitations and finding, you know, finally finding something that works for him or her. Um, uh, yeah, I think reading is very important. And then obviously just doing it over and over and over again is really important. Um, so, I mean, I was lucky I had a really great editor that I got to work with early on at Harvard's, Ben Metcalf, who's no longer there. Uh, but Ben was a great editor to me and, and many other people. Um, one of the great editors was for a while, I think, one of the great editors in magazines. Ben's no longer there. But um, he was very helpful to me trying to kind of work on on my style and what I was working on initially. And so, you know, having a good editor makes a huge difference as well. And how did they initially lure you here you worked here before you became editor-in-chief i did yeah i i um i was i was in austin and um i mean this kind of gets back to your first question i think which was uh whether i wanted to be an editor or whether i just ended up being an editor um i mean you know i set off to become a writer um but i always i always was interested in being um uh part of a community and perhaps part of the um, uh, part of a community of writers and writing and journalism and, and maybe even part of the the kind of folks who were trying to direct that community because mm -hmm. I, um, you know, it's another type of creativity really to direct a community like that. And uh, I came to work here after doing a stint at graduate school at UT um, and I was a senior editor and I did that for several years. Um, and then the uh, the then editor of the magazine left and I took over. It's pretty simple. Do you think of it as a, as you know, they've had editors here. I mean, he was here for 
fairly long time, right? I Evan, mean, those Evan for Smith. Decades. The, yeah, the previous editor was Evan Smith, and he he was editor for I believe nine years. Okay. Um, he'd been here for maybe maybe nine or ten years prior to that, so he was here at the magazine for I think about eighteen years. Uh, he was preceded by. I mentioned Greg Curtis earlier. Greg was editor for 20 years, and then his predecessor, Bill, the founding editor, was editor for 10 years. So I'm only the fourth editor in the magazine's history, uh, and we've been around for 40 years this past February, which is pretty unusual, I think, um, and you know, indicative of something. Well, it's indicative of a lot of things. One is that there's really no other magazines to go work for down here. Um, <laughs> right. But um, well, that can but, be that. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. I was going to just interject that that could be a negative in a way. Like you don't have local competition. I mean, granted right. all the great stories are yours. I mean, sometimes right. I look at like Skip Hollingsworth stories and wonder like, how does he find all these stories? But, um, but then the, the downside could be, you don't have the pressure that could be valuable in some way. It's just, it's still the frontier, right? It's like the thing that's always been true about Texas is that it's a frontier, right? That's been the defining characteristic of Texas is that it is a frontier. Now, it's not a frontier in the same way as it was 150 years ago, obviously, but it still is a frontier and there's a still a sort of a frontier mentality. It's part of what we were talking about earlier about the national identity of Texas is that it is that it's a frontier, is that people still live in the frontier and on the frontier when they're down here. And it's definitely true from a journalistic standpoint, and that's good and bad. It means that, you know, we don't we're not in we're not living in the mix of a large community of journalists and media folks like, you know, people in New York are, uh, which means that, you know, you don't, you're not necessarily as easily in on the cutting edge of everything that everyone's talking about and understanding about how the business is evolving. Um, you just don't have the lunches that would lead you to feel that way. Um, or you don't have them with as much frequency, but you, but you also don't, so you have more of the feeling that you're figuring things out for yourself, um, which means that you make more mistakes, but you also have, I think a little bit more leeway and freedom to find a certain path down here than you would if you were um, if you were surrounded by other magazines and other media companies. The writers that you have around, how do you keep them? I mean, we talked about the staff writing thing, but you know, have you had have there been ones from Texas Monthly that flee? Yeah, to, I uh, mean, yeah, it. Uh, I mean, it, there are. It hasn't happened recently. I mean, there are a number of examples of writers who at one time worked here who, you know, names who we now read all the time. Robert Draper was a longtime Texas Monthly writer. Joe Nacera wrote for the magazine for a long time. Nick Lemon, uh, Larry Wright. Um, so, yeah, I mean, definitely people leave the magazine. Um, I, I mean, I I try not to have them leave <laughs> <laughs> because I think we have an incredible staff here. And um, one of the ways that... that that we, that we, um, I think keep writers here is that this is a writer. We always say this is a writer's magazine. It's been kind of a, the mantra of Texas monthly for years and years and years. And what it means in practice is that, um, for the most part, uh, story ideas come from the writers. Hmm. So it was Pam's idea to do that Michael Morton story. Um, it was Skip's idea to do the still life story that Skip Hollinsworth's idea to do the still life story that won the national magazine award. Um, I mean, and, and on and on. Writers tend to generate. I'll put it this way: the best stories are the ones that the writers generate. Mm. I, obviously, we do assign pieces, and there's certain things that we think we need to have in the magazine, and so we'll go find somebody and force them to do the story. Um, that usually that might end wind up with a good cover line, but it, the best stories are the ones that originate from writers finding stories. I mean, Skip, 
and this is what I love about this place. It's like the story of how Skip found that still life story about the football player who, uh, high school football player who was paralyzed and lived his entire life in his bed, basically. Um, you know, that was an obituary in the local news. But what he, why, why he knew that it would be interesting is that uh, the, the kid was from his neighborhood, Preston Hollow in, um, in Dallas. Uh, and it was, he'd been driving past this house forever in his neighborhood. And his neighborhood is a pretty wealthy neighborhood. Um, or at least it's become wealthy in the last 20 years or so. And a lot of buildings have, a lot of homes have been torn down, old sort of more modest homes have been torn down and, and replaced with McMansions and that sort of thing. And there was this one house that he always drove by that hadn't been torn down. It was kind of, you know, scrappy and it needed a paint job and the lawn was in need of watering and all of that. And it just got worse and worse and worse. And Skip always wondered driving past it who lived there. And uh, so one day he sees an obituary and it's for this guy, John McClamrock. And it very briefly sketched out a story that he had been paralyzed and he'd become a kind of local celebrity briefly. And Richard Nixon had written him letters saying, get well. And that was the house. And he suddenly understood that this incredible story had been happening in this house that he'd been driving past and that if he could figure out how to get in there, there would be an amazing story there. And so, I mean, obviously that's a story that, um, you know, his, you know, is kind of coming out of his life, his natural life. That's not a story that I could possibly have assigned to him. Right. Um, and those, those are the best stories. And it's also why this whole model here works of having people who, who live here, who, who just walk around the streets here and see things and who are great journalists and have these little sparks of inspiration. Mimi Swartz working in Houston, you know, this happens to Mimi all the time. She just, she sees things and she, she experiences the city in a way that, that, you know, that leads to these, to these great stories that she writes. And so hopefully the fact that we give writers the kind of freedom to, to behave that way, to, um, you know, to, um, let, inspiration come to them and to be creative in their search for stories and to not just, you know, sit at their desk and get assigned another profile of Selena Gomez or whatever (laughs) is, um, uh, although that would, she would be a good story, um, is, uh, is one of the reasons that people stay here. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you, Evan. Yeah. I actually have one postscript. Yes. We probably won't include, but when we were talking about, um, you know, like invading the Citadel of magazines. And yeah, all yeah. That, when I, I was living in San Francisco, I was an intern at Wired. Yeah. And I was obsessed with writing for Harper's. Uh-huh. Harper's was my favorite magazine. I would subscribed right. to it forever. And an ex-girlfriend of mine had interned at Harper's. And she gave me the name of someone, an editor there. So I started communicating with the editor and sending ideas and I wish I could go back and find these ideas because I think they were like the worst <laughs> ideas ever. And then I went to New York and this editor was nice enough to meet me for coffee yeah. and like explain kind of like what I should try to do. I should try to pitch an annotation, which was like an easier thing to right, get in. Right. And I pitched a bunch of those and one of them almost went and didn't work out. And then I got really frustrated and I thought like, ah, this editor just doesn't even, doesn't like my ideas or whatever. And I never wrote for Harper's and I still haven't. And I believe that editor is your wife. Really? I think so. Mary Sil- Mary Lamont? Yeah. Really? <laughs> yeah. I only, in one of your bios, I saw that recently. She was so nice to me. It was like, I was like the kid That's who had hilarious. no idea what I was doing. And she was like, all right, let's meet for coffee. I'll like try to help you. And then even that couldn't, it couldn't help me. Yeah. I mean. 
it's just hard. It's hard to like break into a place. Yeah, it totally is. When you're kind of like, because you're not just clueless. I mean, you might read the magazine, but I just I was like so clueless about how anything right. worked or like what. Well, would, and I mean, you know, get the, it over the top, you know, like yeah. And um, I mean, and I still feel that way about the New Yorker. This the New Yorker, not not as like a writer, but just as a sort of person who observes how journalism is done. They that still seems like the kind of the cold and ruthless operation of a brilliant machine that, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like from the outside, almost impossible to understand. I mean, I say that partly in jest, but that was kind of the, that was kind of the gag of who, how the New Yorker was perceived in the story and I, in the book. And I still kind of think of the New Yorker that way. It's like just every week they must, you know, the gate comes down <laughs> and another magazine slides out and, you know. <laughs> but then now you're running a magazine. So, I mean, a monthly, though. See, a weekly. Yeah. I don't understand weeklies. It's just like, I mean, I've never worked at a weekly, and um, the pace of of how they turn stories and how that staff does the work that they do is baffling to me. Yeah. Having always been in a monthly and kind of had this rhythm, it's just a, uh, it's different. It's a different beast entirely. Yeah. But there is a. I feel like there's always a kind of arbitrariness to the way ideas get make their way in and who finds them and how they get assigned that. When you're looking at something like the New Yorker from the outside, you're like, they have some process right. that I can't crack. Right. Um, but actually, right. like, you know, two weeks ago, somebody mentioned a story about Japan and you pitched a story about Japan and they're like, no, we're already doing anything totally. about Japan. Uh, yeah, so it's all blood sugar. That's yeah. how I feel about it. The whole business is all just comes down to blood sugar. <laughs> like, was the person's blood sugar at the right level when your story landed in front of them? It's just all blood sugar. That's it. That's the magazine industry. <laughs> all right. That's a good place to stop. All right. We're done. Thanks for listening to Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from The Atavist. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Uh, our editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Sarah Mondalari. And we'll be back next week. Our sponsor is Tiny Letter. Thanks for listening. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.